But now, because of all we've described, Simeus, we should do everything so as to partake of virtue and thoughtfulness in life. For beautiful is the prize, and the hope great. Socrates. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa Bianco. How are you, Larissa? I'm doing well. How are you? You're doing a good job with these podcasts. Thank you. 60,000 downloads. This is nuts. Great work. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, really good. We got some great guests. We're taping another one today. I guess it doesn't matter if I'm speaking about the future because we haven't released these yet, but it's going to be a great season. It is a great season that we're currently in the midst of. So, uh, okay, without further ado, we've got a very special guest. Now, a backstory here. When the Albertus Magnus Institute was but a twinkle in my eye coming to be, there was one person who shot me down when I asked her to become a faculty member. She shot me down cold. And this only happened to us twice, actually. Everybody else said, yes, of course, I'll do this. But one person said, no, I won't. I'm doing something similar myself. And, you know, something in me wanted to be angry at this, you know, a competitor, right? But I was instantly happy and surprised and really encouraged and and wanted to promote this work. And so we now finally have a chance to do it. The great author of Wonder, teacher at St. John's College, Dr. Zena Hitz is here with us now. Hello, Zena. Hello, John. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for forgiving me, me spurning your projects oh, I, for my I own projects. <laughs> That's right. I forget. The more projects, the merrier. I honestly believe that. I think they help each other. I don't think they're rivals. Um, I agree, especially in this line of work. So we're very excited to share with our little audience everything that you're doing. Uh, I want to start right out the gate with a plug. In fact, I tell people to read this book. I have a friend who's dedicated. She's a fellow in the Institute, actually, but actually dedicated her year to becoming a year of wonder. And I said, well, you need to read this book, Lost in Thought. The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. It's a beautiful book. It's a memoir. And as memoirs tend to be introspective, it is that. But as introspective as it is, it's also deeply perspicacious. So by, by looking into your own little broken heart, you seem to discover the heart of things in a beautiful way. And so it's a book that everybody should read. Thank you for writing that. I just want to say it's a, it's a beautiful text that we are glad you wrote. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. Yeah, it's wonderful. You bet. All right. I want to start actually from the book. There's a, there's a, and I don't have it open, so I'm not going to quote it exactly. I'll brutally paraphrase it. But at some point in your young uh, undergraduate experience, you note that for some reason, your professors talk to you as if your thoughts mattered, as if willing your genius into existence. And that 
echoed so strongly with me in my undergraduate experience. I'm sure anybody who went to one of these great, great books colleges like you did, St. John's, Annapolis, one of our endorsed institutions, something about that way of respect that is to see in the student the ability to actualize the teacher as as patient, right? That actually actualized you in a way that created this genius. So just talk a little bit about that. Okay, so I didn't use the word genius. I will correct you on that. That's true. I use the word genius. <laughs> they willed my they I would the way I would put it, they willed my adulthood, they willed my free thinking into being. They pretended like it already existed, which it didn't. I mean, um, you know, I was like most 18, 19 year olds, not a super um, self-motivated thinker. And a lot of what matters to young people, right, is fitting in with their peers and not thinking for themselves. Uh, Even if we might like to think that, um, even our ways of thinking differently are often follow certain models when we're younger. Uh, So I'm enormous. I mean, I think of all the things for my education, that's the thing that I'm most grateful for was being treated like an adult, being treated like my thinking mattered. Um, and it's, it's the thing that truthfully, yeah, I think I'm most committed to. Um, there's a lot to say about great books and why they matter and how endangered they are and how they need to be received. But in a way, I fear more for that spirit, that spirit of um, you, young person, you will someday take my place. And I'm going to make that possible by talking to you as, a, as an equal um, and letting whatever happens, happen, leaving you some space to develop in your own direction. Uh, that spirit of freedom, I think, is really in danger these days. I agree. It's so beautiful. And it's as if the teacher can see in this block of marble the, the David and the teacher is Michelangelo. And even if the block of marble has no idea what's inside, the teacher can make it. I yeah. wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't put it that way. Do you mind if I argue with you a little bit? Um, oh. Oh, I, I, yes, I, um, I, I wouldn't put it that way because I'm not Michelangelo. The student is Michelangelo. Um, I'm saying to the self-actualizing block of marble, I know that you have things in there that you don't know about yet. Like let's see some sculpting happen. And you don't, you don't, I don't know even what, know what it looks like. You don't even know it. That's right. That's I don't right. Know what it looks like. I, and I certainly don't have control over it. I mean, if I were Michelangelo, that would suggest that I was responsible for making this block beautiful, but it's, that's not the case. I, the way I was treated by my teachers and the way that I treat, I try to treat my students is um, you are equal to me. I'm not the artisan and you're not the block of marble. You're my equal. And that in a way, that's what I'm saying is that it's a little bit of a, a startup mythology because in some ways young people are young. Um, but in another way, that is actually how they become free and independent is oh, that's beautiful. by being yeah, treated I, that way. So they, they actually do have these sculptors. They, they can become these sculptors of uh, their own lives um, their lives with others. And, um, but they need, they need to be treated as if that's the case. If you treat them always like blocks of marble, that's what they're going to believe about themselves. And they're going to think they're totally dependent on others to make something beautiful out of them, out of their lives. They're not they're, They, they could do it themselves. They, we, we can't see, especially in times like this, 
we can't see what kinds of possibilities are going to face the young people. We really don't know. And we have to give them whatever they need, most of all, the confidence in their own judgment and their confidence in their own capacities to grow and be creative to, so that when they see it, they know what to do and they know how to respond in a way that's creative and imaginative and free, whatever the circumstances give them. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and what sort of student are you encountering these days at St. John's or wherever you teach? Um, I teach, you know, I, I, my, most of my life is at St. John's. Um, so I did, uh, found the Catherine Project, which is the project that's parallel to the Magnus Institute, um, a sort of fellow traveler of the Magnus Institute. Um, I haven't been able to teach much there recently, um, but I see in my students, honestly, amazing young people. Um, they respond, you know, all of the things that people say about the young is true. They're easily like us. They're easily distracted by the technology. Um, they um, aren't accustomed necessarily like us, like we adults, <laughs> to serious reading or serious thinking or the disciplines of conversation. Um, but they respond very quickly and very aptly to an environment where they're given an opportunity. Uh, so, so on the one hand, I, I want to say like, yeah, sure, the kids are different in some ways. In another way, I want to say we are way overplaying how different they are. Um, we need to give them the chance to uh, be all, you know, to become all that they can do. And I, I see it happen every day. So I know for a fact that it can be done. Um, so you yeah, see, these, it, I have freshmen right now who like, you, you know, you, you wouldn't believe the stuff that they can do. Like they're incredible, oh. incredible students. And they're ordinary. They're ordinary people. They're not like, it's not like St. John's only pulls in these. I mean, we do get some exceptional people who come just to us. But we also get ordinary students who really respond to what they're doing. And that's that's what we love most to see is that. How would you characterize the student of St. John's? Every every one of these great authentically liberal academic institutions has their own sort of brand and their own sort of mark that's that's a that's resemblant of their fruit that they, they produce every year. You know, the TAC student is not the Wyoming Catholic student, is not the St. Mary's College student. And is definitely not the St. John student, uh, something of a granddaddy in the pedigree. How would you characterize, obviously it's a secular school, it's named after the St. John's River, but it does pump out a lot of beautiful uh, Catholics. Let's just say it like that. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of not, sure, uh, yeah. as, as with any one of these places. But how would you distinguish and characterize the flavor of the St. John's College graduate? I would say the flavor of the St. John's College graduate is restlessness. Mm. Um, and I say that because unlike the other schools you mentioned, we draw a wider variety of people. So we, we get regular secular progressives. I mean, there's nothing regular about any of our students, but secular progressive students, that's probably the majority. Uh, a lot of them from the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, we also get some uh, conservative or Christian students. So there's always has been, and thanks to be God, there still is a, a really remarkable round of political and religious diversity for, for a secular liberal arts college. Um, and, uh, but they all, so they, we have classes where very, very different kinds of people with very different points of view come together and talk about, say, the Bible or Shakespeare. Um, and there's sometimes tension from that. So, you know, the St. John's student is restless. St. John's students also often critical and often 
you know, gets into gets into conflicts a bit more readily than maybe some of the students in the other schools. But there's also a real, um, I think all of us have a sense that we've, we've a longing for real community with others that are different from us um, and a real desire to make it work. Um, so it's, it's honestly enormously inspiring to me. Uh, but, 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 you know, so we get the sort of the, the Christian or the conservative students who are a little restless. They, they don't want to be told what to think. Um, their, their faith is strong. And so they want to, to see how far they can get with it. In a, they want to challenge it in an environment where they have to talk about their faith on, on common terms, on human terms. Um, and likewise, I think the, the secular progressive students come, they don't want to be told what to think. Uh, they don't want to be, they don't want to be bossed around. They don't want to be pushed yep. through machinery. Um, they want to actually confront things and think about things. Um, so I, I, that's why I say restlessness is what ties us together. And, and that, that's, it, that's partly, it has to do with the search, right? The search is, it's done. So. It's sort of like an abrasive rock tumbler, you know, where there's, a, <laughs> of, there's a lot of iron sharpening iron, right? It sort exactly. of tends to produce very shiny stones because, um, right. and, and, and if there's one thing that, you know, I think all of these liberal arts colleges are in their own way. Um, the best grapes grow in the rockiest soil. Uh, sorry, that's like my third rock analogy of the podcast, <laughs> of this young podcast. But to the extent that you have to fight for your own thoughts, uh, not even as your own, but just fight for what's real and come out on you know victorious or not or or, or joyfully defeated, uh, that that has a very formative mark on a person versus just this insular, uh, you know, bubble, Catholic bubble or any sort of bubble where right. you're spoon fed and pontificated and can't think your way out of wet paper bag at the end of the day. That's right. And I, I think maybe now I'd put it, so there's two images and they're a little in conflict. One is the one that you're just talking about where there's a bit of um, smoothing by conflict, but there's something else that happens because I, and it's something I think is worth saying because it's lost sight of it in some of our debates about, you know, free speech and, you know, open conversation, which is that a lot of what happens at St. John's is you read the books and you leave opinions at the door um, yep. and you just move into something deep because you have to find what's common because people don't like conflict, honestly, not our students and not anyone else. So you have to find what's common because what you really want is to build something with your colleagues. So it, it in a way it's, um, it's a very constructive and profound experience where you go into the books, you ask fundamental questions, and you have to connect with these people who are very different from you. And that often means reaching for something that isn't the point of conflict, but something that's more that's underneath that that is more fundamental to you. Um, and that's that's the cuddlier version than the than the uh, smoothing by conflict. Although I think the smoothing by conflict also happens. So if if you're that. if there's a high school student or a parent listening to this right now and wondering if St. John's College is a good fit. Who would you recommend? Obviously, you know, certain people would thrive at certain places and certain people would shrivel up and die at certain places, as noble as those places are. Who would really thrive and benefit from St. John's and who should maybe avoid it, if anybody? Um, you know, I, I've seen so many different kinds of people flourish at St. John's. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that there's a, it's a, it has two unique features. One is it's a, a home for the restless, but it really is homey that it 
like the other, all the other schools you mentioned, we take care of our students. We have small classes. We meet with them all year. We get to know our students extremely well. So it's a, a place that's networked with relationships. And so I think, I mean, the kind of student who I was and the kind of student I always look out for is the student who maybe is um, restlessly looking for a different kind of home than the one they came from. Um, but I also, that, that really is, that's not going to appeal to your listeners who may be the parents of, of faithful Christians. They don't want them to go challenge. <laughs> it should. It really should. <laughs> well, except I think that it is, I think St. John's is safe. So it's challenging, yeah. but it's safe. And there are um, a lot of faculty members who can support a, a Christian student, a conservative student, and help them um, to weather it. So it's, it, I think it can look to many parents like they're throwing their children into this, um, this high conflict environment and they don't know what's going to happen. But I think the thing I would want to communicate to them is that it's, um, we do take care of our students. And we do care about them as people and we don't want them to be um, spiritually destroyed. By and I'd imagine what that, happens. that sort of, no, like, yeah. I mean, There's an alumni relationship as well. I mean, in a lot of these places, right. my experience is that you can you can bump into somebody at a cocktail party who graduated 40 years before you, and you're just great buddies. You can pick up any conversation. It's like you're in the same family automatically. That's definitely true. Um, you definitely become a member of a kind of worldwide group of people who have instantly things in common. Um, and it's also true that it's definitely in my experience as alone that what the, the differences drop away when, when you, when you've been away for a while, you know, you thought, Oh, I'm so different from that student. You, right. You, you go away for five years and you come back and you're like, I have so much more in common with these people than I do with other people because we've had this formative experience in common. Um, and so that's, that's the beauty of the thing is that really yeah. very, very different kinds of people from very different walks of life can come together and experience something profound together that they'll share always. Well said. This is my last question about the college. And then Larissa, I'll let you jump in here. I know you're, you're eager to go. Uh, is there, is there a, uh, a recommendation or a difference? I mean, you have a, a campus in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe. Is that right? So mm -hmm. uh, any, any, I mean, is one as good as the other, or do you need the real deal out in, in Annapolis? Or <laughs> what, what do you recommend? I know you, you might not be able to speak freely here, but. They're probably both very, awesome, right? I can speak very freely and I can say the one, and also my whole life I've been hearing all of these differences yep. between the two campuses, which often contradict to each other, the things you hear, the rumors you hear. So, you know, oh, Santa Fe is way more laid back. Annapolis is way more uptight. Santa Fe is way more rigorous. You know, Annapolis is more academic. And, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, so this is what I would say. I think the main difference that, that um, most students will know once they set foot on campus is that Santa Fe is spectacularly beautiful in the mountains in Santa Fe, like one of the most beautiful campuses in the country by far um, and incredible opportunities for hiking and, and being in nature. So it's, I think it's suited for a person with a bit more love of solitude. They, they definitely are building, they have a community that they've built just like in Annapolis, but it is, I think people who are a little more introverted um, prefer Santa Fe. Annapolis is very social, um, you know, very, um, yeah. So it's, and also not as, not as beautiful, but right in the town. So you can go do things in town. So it's a little more plugged in, a little more connected. 
um, but also more chaotic. Um, yeah. As far as which which group of graduates founded the illustrious American Spirit Tobacco? Oh, I actually didn't know that we did. That. Did you know that? Well, that's <laughs> no, Johnny. No, Johnny. Johnny's have done some remarkable things. That makes me so proud. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't admit that. Yeah, I think officially we're supposed to be anti-smoking, but you know. I, no, no. Um, yeah. There, uh, there's a time and a place. Um, yeah. But yeah, they know they. Yeah, that was founded by Johnny's, and they sold it for millions to one of the big guys. Oh, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, I, and, I don't and, know which campus they came from. Um, right. Yeah, for a useless degree, these people do some pretty useful things in the world, right? Oh, uh, no. The, the useless thing is such a huge myth. I see that's right. my, I see my former students and my fellow alumni all the time doing amazing things out in the world. I don't have no idea how this got out into the water. Well, that's the joke, um, right? You, I mean, yeah. you've got a beautiful chapter in your book, The Uses of Uselessness. Yeah. Right? I mean, okay, yeah. Larissa, you ask questions. Oh, you're fine. This is great. You were just yeah. getting started on some great. I, I, I love your the autographs, Zena. <laughs> I really was going to ask you about um, the good life as you've written about it and know so much about it and studied about it and read about it. And I mean, that's obviously it sounds like what you're giving your students at St. John's is how to live the good life. So, yeah. How do you. What well, makes the good life? Zena? What is the good life? What is it? We want to know. Uh, I I, mean, I I tremble a little bit when you say I know a lot about the good life. It makes it sound like I, you know, I'm always seen on a yacht with a pina colada. And <laughs> I've been everywhere, yeah. you know, gambling Monte Carlo and schmoozing with royalty. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm saying that's a joke. And then, of course, it's also part of what I think we encounter when we think about the good life is mm-hmm. um, things in our imagination about success um, about pleasure, about what it means to, you know, make, make good in the world. Um, and I suppose the tactic I tend to take when I'm talking to audiences about what the good life is, um, and this, I think, is the only way that I'm in any way, <laughs> I don't think I'm any kind of expert. I think I'm just passing on some wisdom from classical philosophy. Um, but I think the way to think about it is to look at one's own life and ask oneself, what is there, like, what are the things that you do, which, in which your life seems to culminate in some way, you know, when are the moments when you think to yourself, you know, when you're, maybe you're not even thinking to yourself, but looking back, you think, like, there's nothing missing, I keep doing, going like this forever, like, this is where it's at, I'm just being who I am, I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm not thinking about the future, I'm not thinking about the past, I'm not like building something, you know, that's not there yet. I have it right now. So some examples um, of activities like this are, you know, time in nature, time with your family, um, art, you know, art and music, um, prayer and contemplation. Um, studying is, of course, the one I talk about the most, um, where, you know, you're thinking about something, you're working something out, and you're not you're not thinking about it as something that's going to get you something else. Um, you might have a question that you're after and you might make progress towards that question, but once you make some progress, you might well ask a different question and move in a different direction. Or once you, once you feel like you've reached a satisfactory answer to that, you're gonna move on to something else. 
And it's the activity that really matters to you. It's the activity of thinking and contemplating and studying and having a conversation and reading a good book. That's what really matters to you. So I think that's the kind of structure of the good life. It's something which has an order in it where what matters the most, the things that where our lives really culminate are kind of have pride of place. They're what you're working towards and everything else is uh, subordinate in some way. Um, so that's the way we normally live is we're captivated by these fantasies of success. We're anxiously running from one thing to another and we, our lives don't have that kind of order. But I think what we would dream of having if we're going to have a good life is a life where, you know, you're doing maybe a, a wide variety of things, but there's something that you're working towards and that's an activity where you are the being that you are, you're doing what you're meant to be doing and you're not looking at anything else. Like, um, anyway, that's my, that's my start off. That's I'll start off with that and like hear what you guys have to say. How do you know when you're there? I mean, are you describing the flow or being in the zone or something that you sort of know you're doing for your own sake? And it's almost like, that sort of activity is almost like fun. And by that, I mean, to the extent that you try to pursue it, it will elude you. If you get all your friends together and say, hey, guys, I've planned a night of fun and we will go and have some fun. That's That doesn't sound fun at all. That sounds miserable, right? So, so, but if you say, hey, let's let's go get a drink at the pub. Let's go bowling or something. Well, then you might find yourself having it. But it has to be achieved receptively, theoretically, through the intellectus, right? Intuitively. It has to be given is what I'm trying to say. So how does one dispose themselves to be given this thing that is an end in itself? Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of sort of, uh, you know, wis- wisdom, traditions, um, thinking about who has gone before you, who you'd like to be like, um, imagining and following um, certain models of life. Uh, that's how you prepare yourself is by, you know, in setting up before yourself something that looks like you can trust in it, even though you don't know exactly what you're getting. That's what happens to people when they go to college, right? They never know what they're getting um, or when they sign up for it course with the Magnus Institute with Catherine Project. They don't know what they're getting, but they they have an idea that this is something, some kind of channel that's been pet that's been gone through before. And so they they trust it, they step into it, and then they find it. So I'm not one of these people. So on the one hand, I don't want to, the way I just talked about it emphasizes the feeling, you know, of being in the zone, you know, being in the flow. But the feeling isn't quite enough because it's not just a feeling which you could get with medication or drugs or something. It's Mm -hmm. also, you know, that what you're doing and you judge and you, you say, this is the culmination of my life. This is what really matters. That's one of the ways that you, you can distinguish it within yourself from just plain fun, which I'm a fan of. I like fun, but fun is not the culmination of life. Um, culmination of life is um, something different. If I, if I could just use family for a bit as an example, 
Now there, like being, you know, when and why is being with your family a um, culminating end, a place where you really are living the good life? Well, sometimes it's in beautiful moments where you're having a great time, you're playing cards by the fireside, you're on a picnic, you're in a park, there's a wedding, et cetera. So on the one hand, that's the moment where you're like, this is it. Like, I'm just enjoying being who I am with these people who are a part of me. But it's also true that in moments of really grave crisis, right? Like someone's in the hospital mm. um, and, or you're, you know, someone's in a, in a really grave situation. That's also a case where you're living the good life, even though bad things are happening to you. And in a way, you wouldn't know what your family meant to you without those moments. Uh, if it was all fun, you wouldn't know that. Same with studying. Um, I was just talking to someone today about writing my freshman essay at St. John's, which was just this time of year, which is so beautiful in Annapolis. The trees are budding and the bulbs are coming out and the weather's just perfect. And I wrote this essay and it was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I feel like I'm just going from insight to insight. This is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. You know, and that never happened again. You know, every writing project after that has been some kind of struggle. Um, and I think that struggle is important. It's that's part of being who you are too. You have to, so something that's real and deep and culminating for your life is going to have different dimensions to it. It's not just going to be fun, but you will be able to say, this is what makes my life matter. This thing that's I'm doing. right. And this unlike, thing I'm doing right now. Unlike mere fun or drugs or drunken vendors that you talk about in your book, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it's it, authentic good life, this state of, of receptivity or contemplation is always preceded by a great deal of work or suffering or what? I mean, the shock of beauty, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, um, I, I'm re- I would be reluctant to make it too systematic because I think yeah. it can happen in different ways. I mean, sometimes it really is you know, like I say, like, I, you know, I fell in love with the intellectual life writing that essay um, because it was so beautiful and ecstatic and exciting. And I felt so great. Um, and I got immediate rewards for it. So I got a prize for that essay. Um, but in pursuit of that, I discovered something different. I discovered the value of really trying to understand something, being frustrated, have it feel like a failure. Um you know, trying to write something out, but it feels like gibberish. But then later something comes together and you see what's going on. So, so sometimes what draws you onto the discipline is just that promise of uh, something like ecstasy. Um, but other, for other people, I think who are more, who are less impulsive and more duty bound than I ever was as a young person. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have been drawn in by duty. I had no sense of duty. So, but there are people who are just like, well, you know, um, you know, mom and dad say the great books. I'm going to say the great books. And so I'm going off to the great book school and they too can find it. Um, even though they start, they're starting out from a sense of just like, you know, I trust, I trust my elders. I trust what I'm told. I trust the rules. I trust my teachers. I'm just going to go in here and open myself up to whatever's going to happen. They can also get it. Is it harder for those types? I don't think so. No, why would it be? I mean, the way it might be easier. Because ecstasy is kind of a gamble, right? When do you get it? When do you not get it? Um, what happens when it goes away? Um, do you have the stick to itiveness to stay in it? Um, so I, I don't. I don't think 
And there's it also seems like it w- those it are just two like examples. There's like ten trillion others, right? There's sure. You know, you you have duty for a while, and then you have a great experience, so you keep on going. Or you have great experience, and then you try some duty, and then you try some this, and you try some that. So it's it it's seems very, it yeah. seems like it could be harder for that judicious soul, the engineer type, the the law follower, precisely because of the inhibition. It's hard to it's hard to let yourself go to wonder when you have to know the next move and follow the next order, or it could be, I, and I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who's not that. So I don't want to make a, you know, a punching bag out of that type of human, yeah. but it does seem harder in my experience for those sorts of people to open themselves and release themselves to a world of wonder. I'm not sure. So um, it's something I started to discover when I was started um, traveling and speaking, I am a speaker with the Thomistic Institute, which you might know that is also a kindred. Yeah. So I, I went around to a number of college campuses. I haven't had as much time this past year to do it, um, but I, I did a lot of it. And um, it was almost all engineering students who were, and physics students, STEM students who were mm. like reading the big novels and like pouring through philosophy in their spare time. And like, they had this hunger. And I, I found that sense with Catherine Project. We get a lot of people who work in the tech industry or people who have engineering backgrounds or business backgrounds, and they're just dying for this type of learning. And they, you know, and they'll do, they'll uh, undertake enormous outlays of time to do it. Yeah, you're right. That's true. We have a lot of those, right, Larissa, in yeah. classes? Yeah. No, she's right. I think, you're honestly, right. the humanities are being kept alive by people like that. I mean, that's the sad irony, right, is that yeah. Uh, university true. university administrators are saying like, oh, only engineering matters. The kids today don't care about anything that's deep. And the engineering students are like, well, okay, we'll take the engineering courses, but give us more. Like, it's not enough. Um, okay, so then and how- the universities aren't accommodating them, so people like us have to accommodate them. So how does the uh, the practical human respond when they are confronted and actually thirsty for? Something that is an end in itself, something that is beautifully useless. So, is it an epiphany, or is it uh, is it just this new world for them? I mean, what's your what's been your experience in seeing how this sort of engineer responds to a liberal education for the first time? I I don't know enough um, about how it works, and again, I guess my guess is that it's various. So again, sometimes maybe you just start doing something because you're kind of bored and anxious and you've heard that this is a good thing to do. Um, sometimes maybe you, you know, someone who's into it, who, who, who leads you along. And uh, that's, of course, that's, I, I don't think our conversation wouldn't be right if we didn't point that out, that, that um, friends and teachers and fellow travelers are essential. Right. I mean, that's how we see what these things look like. Um, that's how we develop our sense of who we want to be. So that's another way that it commonly happens. Um, I mean, one of my one of my spiritual advisors once described me. This we're talking about spiritual life, but I think it's true for other things. That um, you know, prayer is like an antibiotic. <laughs> so it doesn't work right away. Like it's not like an instant fix. It gets into your system slowly, and then gradually you look back later and you're like, oh this is different. Things are different now. Uh, On that note, I want to get your perspective and advice. Uh, You found yourself 
for many years in what people call the uh, what is it the order of perpetual discernment, uh, <laughs> trying trying to find your way. Yes, that's so, right. And, and with a, with a beautiful um, resolution, I would say it seems at least. Uh, so, what advice would you give to anybody struggling to find their way through life? Uh, or struggling to know what they are called to do, struggling to find one's vocation. Give us the best vocation discernment advice you possibly can. As I can, and it's uh, as an expert. <laughs> um, we're expert is funny. It always also hits the same times people funny. Like I'm not <laughs> yep, an expert. Yep, I'm just yep. the most advanced student in the classroom. That's what we say. That's right. Um, so you know, I I'm I've had the privilege since the book came out of people reach out to me and ask me for advice who are in similar circumstances. So I've been able to think it through a bit what what I think that best advice is. And I think two things which sound like they're intention, but it's they're both very important. One is that uh, you have to be very patient. It can take years. I mean, we have these jokes about the order of perpetual discernment, but the truth is it really can take a long time before your circumstances are going to present to you the thing that you're supposed to do next, that is yeah. really the fulfillment of your dreams. So most people who are in that condition, like I was, or people who I talk to regularly now, they have some kind of dream and they can't see how to make it real. You know, um, They have a kind of vision and they know it's intention with their ordinary life, but they don't know how to, they don't know how to connect the two. Um, and the answer is not to just throw away the dream, like to keep the dream, keep that alive and live in the, learn to live in the discomfort, the tension, and then just keep your eyes and ears open and keep putting one foot in front of the other. And it's the, the real work of it is the trust mm. that you will see an opportunity. God will give you um, the resolution to your question. And until you undergo all that and have that experience, in a way, your faith is a bit of a gamble. Like, so um, it's it's a test of faith, just as we read about it in all of scripture and all our traditions are full of this stuff. It's a test of faith. And you, the only way to get to pass it is to go through it and to live in the discomfort for a certain period of time and, and trust. And trusting is not a feeling because you won't feel trusting if you're like me. <laughs> but it's it's just putting one foot in front of the other and waiting that's beautifully said i think so many of us find ourselves trying to seek clarity so that we can accept whatever that clarity might be but for me anyway it was i had to realize that what was lacking was the yes before i got the clarity and when i found the yes the clarity followed instantly and easily you would echo that yeah, I think that's right. I think that's definitely one way that it happens. Like, or, I mean, they can come so closely together that you can't tell them apart. Um, right, right. It's not, sometimes discernment can feel like the answer's out there. And if I work hard enough, I can find it right now. And it definitely doesn't work like that. Definitely does not work like that. That's it true. always involves patience, listening. And don't, I mean, also don't be afraid to take some risks and go on some adventures. Uh, I think a lot of young people have trouble with that these days. Um, oh, yeah. No, you know, go on adventures, especially when you're young. I had to go live with monks in Norcia for them to tell me. They laughed at me. <laughs> I'll, never for, I'll never forget it. The, he's now the prior, but he looks at me and he says, we're out on a beautiful hike. And he turns to me and he says, who are you kidding, John? You're not going to be a monk. Go get married. <laughs> 
but it was so uh, it was just like this weight off my shoulders and i'm like yeah you're right i'm not gonna be a monk i'm here because it's the coolest hardest thing i could imagine doing but it's not what i want to do i want to go marry a smoking hot wife and have 20 <laughs> kids and that's what i'm doing you know and but i had i had to be free to do what I loved and how I was loved the best. Yeah. It's just love. It's so, and love is so simple. It's yeah, so it, simple. I think when you, that is also the thing. It always, the moment of correct discernment always seems so simple. But think about it that you could have reacted really differently. This is what's so interesting about discernment. That yeah. mom could have turned around and said that to you, and you could have been like, I could have been scandalized. You could have been like, heck no, I want to be a monk. Who are you to tell me I'm not going to be a monk? You know, I want to be a monk. And if you'd had that reaction, then that would have been a sign that you really should be a monk, right? So instead, yeah. instead, what happened was, so I think a good spiritual director will do things like that. They'll be like, well, maybe you should just get married, you know? Oh, maybe you should just be a monk. And your reactions tell you in the long run. Yes. Oh, that's, that's what, why. What's really in your heart. And that's, of course, what God really wants you to Like, God put that in your heart. So, of course, that's going to be what you leads you ahead. Um, Amen. Oh, that's so why. Yeah, vocation is just how you love the best. And then once you do it, there's the power of a vow and the vow binds you like Odysseus being bound to his mast, you know, knowing that he's going to hear these beautiful things uh, and not, you know, but not crash on the rocks because he's bound by this vow, right? The straps to his mast. Yeah. So that's the thing you decide, you, like you say yes to love, then you decide and then you bind yourself and then you're perfectly free. You're per It's so awesome being perfectly free yeah. in the, in the beautiful constraints of a vow. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Tell us about Catherine project and all that that entails. Uh, and look, I'm, I'm here promoting the greatest competitor to the Albertus Magnus Institute. Uh, and, and so, uh, yes, uh, that's a good thing because you're doing great work. And honestly, there's there's a lot of room in this market for the both of us, Zena. So absolutely true. So um, I think the joke I might have made to you long ago when you reached out to me is that um, Catherine Project is the St. John's to Magnus Institute's TAC or something. That's like that. right. Yeah. So yep. so Catherine Project is really has to, it grew out of my sense that there were a lot of people who. Um, loved or would love or needed the kind of conversations that we have at St. John's, the kind of education that we have at St. John's, but who didn't have access to it. So for one reason or another, they don't have the money, they don't have the time, they can't travel, they've got commitments. You know, I was getting emails after the book came out from full-time caregivers and, um, you know, engineers and, you know, moms with young kids and, they were saying, you know, your book resonated with me. I want to, to engage in this kind of activity. I want to live an intellectual life. I want to develop my mind. How can I do it? And, you know, fortunately, it was in the age of emergency COVID teaching. So I had the Zoom model in my mind, which, you know, before that, it would never have occurred to me because I hate technology and the internet um, in principle. But then I saw that it could be this way of connecting yep. people getting people into this, into these kinds of rooms who otherwise would never be able to get into them. So that's what the Catherine project is. We have tutorials, um, which are led by volunteer faculty. 
Um, those are uh, meet once a week. They involve a little bit of writing. They work through some sort of central canonical um, sequence of texts. And then uh, we have tons of reading groups, which are peer led and they're all over the map. They're just whatever people are interested in uh, leading a group about. And of course, vetted by us so that we, we don't get stuff that's too crazy. And, and things are pretty much on, a, a, you know, our conversations are always serious. So anyway, we've uh, at this point um, served something like 1300 people. And um, we last year were able to support ourselves and our own donations. Yay! So we're just we're super. I'm super super thrilled to see how it's developed, and everyone's welcome. No credits, no grades, no tuition. Um, it's uh, very simple, no fees. Um, well, uh, Zena, imitation. It's an open, it's an open door. Any of you who are listening who are thinking like, "Oh, the great books sound cool, but I'd never be up for it." Like the door is open to you. Yes. It, okay, and uh, thank. That's so beautiful and highly recommended. Highly endorsed. I would say imitation is the best form of flattery, but really you weren't imitating AMI at all. It was just this beautiful, intuitive spark of genius. And that we both had that, that we both had. It's true. And the market is ripe. And uh, okay. So two questions. What's the website? How do people find it? And also which Catherine, what's the name about? Tell us about that. So it's catherineproject.org. Um, and there are three Catherines. Um, one is Catherine of Alexandria, patron saint of philosophers, who um, who refuted fifty philosophers um, in a in a single set of arguments with a single speech. Um, there's uh, Catherine of Siena, who um, was an illiterate who um, learned to read in mystical visions, and then there's Catherine Doherty, who was the founder of Madonna House. That's the community I used to live in, mm-hmm. and she she founded a in the forties, when there was no public library system in Canada, no national library system, she started a le- a national lending library by mail. Um, she took in very simple, took in donations of books, opened herself up to letters. People would write a letter. She sent out the books. They send back the books. She get more books donated. So a totally simple way of meeting people's needs to read and reflect and develop their inner lives. And that was the spirit that we wanted to, to start off the project. with. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. And I'm so happy to hear that it's successful. It is surprising, right? That there's so many people eager for this sort of learning and support. And so I would love to see another dozen of organizations like this. I would uh, too. Because it's, it's, it's exactly what the world needs right now. Well, and it's um, giving the lie. Everyone says the humanities are dying. No one cares about this stuff anymore. The book is dying. No one cares about this stuff anymore. It's a lie. It's not true. Um, and if you, right. if you open the doors and make it easier and make it less expensive and, and let, then, and you know what else, all kinds of people come to the Catherine project. I'm sure you've had this experience with Alberta Spangus. Oh and yeah. It is extremely diverse for students. So the idea that there's just one kind of person that wants to do this is absolutely not true. Um, and all you have to do is open the door and see what happens and you can see that it's not. That's right. Yep. So catherineproject.org. And then if you're interested in the brick and mortar option for the uh, restless and rebellious, inquisitive. I didn't say rebellious. I just said. I that. know. I said that. I said that. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful rebelliousness. It's like, I I love arguing with the with the Johnnies because there's no loss of respect. There's no pontification, right. and you you just get your 
you get the duck shot out of the sky that is your idea with a 12 <laughs> and you're so happy you're like yeah well that's the thing they're happy that's what makes that's what makes a great books educated student yeah absolutely yeah so it's, like, it's, like, it's like someone 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 refutes you and you're like oh thank you thank you so much i love that i know it's well, awesome I, I when you said at the beginning of this episode can i disagree with you and i said and i was saying to myself well yes you can <laughs> I, just, I love it um so sjc.edu for St. John's College and all the beauty there, New Mexico, and Annapolis, uh, beautiful things afoot, uh, some hidden, some not. Um, and I want to thank you, Zena Hits, for being here. What did we did we successfully plug everything? So lost in thought. No, we did not. We did okay, not. Okay, thank you. I, I knew I was forgetting something. <laughs> Larissa, you plug something, please. I have a couple things to plug. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Hitz, I'll ask you real, real quick. Do you, can we announce your Twitter or do you want to keep that silent? Oh, no, no, okay. you can ask my Twitter. Everyone knows about it. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's okay. Fine. So at, my, my students already know about it. I can't keep it a secret. It's fine. <laughs> so follow her at Zena Hits. And then Mr. Mahoney. It's great to have you here. Um, can Frank you tell o. Mahoney. us? Mahoney. You Frank, are, you, yes. you are. You are the uh, admissions director. Thanks for jumping in here. You're the, or not admissions. You're communications director for St. John's College. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, I am. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was here. If if we're in plugging mode, um, plug away. We're we're just coming up on Earth Day on April twenty second, um, and we're doing a very large event <clears throat> in Santa Fe uh, to celebrate Earth Day. Um, a day of lectures and movies and hikes and yoga and all the eclectic stuff that you would expect uh, from a St. John's event. Um, that's preceded. Well, so that's uh, the website for that is sjc.edu slash Earth Day. Um, and uh, the weekend before that is an old uh, St. John's tradition, which is uh, croquet. So there's a the Annapolis Cup, where we continue seemingly to beat the pulp out of the Navy croquet people. Um, that's the week before in Annapolis. But um, really would love to see uh, anyone who's within 100 miles of Santa Fe uh, come visit us on the 22nd of April. We're there all day. There's there's one more thing, um, which is very important. Uh, so St. John's, like many great book schools, has a kind of reputation for being a bit insular. We have these conversations. It's amazing. We all love it, but it's not, doesn't seem quite transparent. So we have a new endeavor to make it more transparent to others, which is this podcast called Continuing the Conversation, where we share conversations between faculty members with the general public. And so like a podcast, you can listen to it anytime when you're driving, when you're cooking, what have you. But unlike a podcast, it's an invitation to really, for you to enter into the conversation with us, to get a sense of the kinds of questions and the kind of what, what it really means to have a free open-ended conversation uh, in the St. John's style. So it's a great way to be introduced to the spirit of St. John's and then its descendants, the Catholic Project. And then, then yes, go to Earth Day and Croquet and anything else. Uh, that you know, you Croquet is a great use of the earth. Uh, <laughs> and now that's... <laughs> That's a little controversial, I think. Yeah, I, I think. Lawns, I, think I come is. from California. Lawns are controversial. Lawns are. La lawns, 
Oh, I love I love a good lawn. Um, uh, yes, it should be husbanded and subdued and and elevated. Um, so and I'm oh, man. I so okay. Let me just put my cards on the table. Ninety percent of our audience is going to hear Earth Day and think silly, demonic, ridiculous, fake holiday. And there, let me just cross St. John's off my list right there. But you wouldn't want to pin yourself as as such, obviously. And there are probably students at St. John's College who are perfectly free to affirm such a such an and they have a place there. Is that fair to say? Of course I do. But I I also can I put in a plug for Earth Day because I think that the oh yes love of nature it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to love of nature is something that anyone can be a part of. It doesn't have to be idolatrous. It doesn't have to be anything weird. Um, all it has to mean is, you know, that you recognize and treasure the natural beauty and the splendor of all the animals. And I, I think that people should be on board with that no matter where they come from. But, oh, heck yeah. The okay. earth is awesome. I mean, I, ha- I happen exactly. to live there. Exactly. Yeah. We, can, we can be pro-earth. Uh, uh, yeah, without, I'm, without I'm, dividing ourselves from one the other, I don't think we can totally be pro Earth. Uh, I I do I happen to live live there. Um, is uh, but as you said in your book, even right, this is a beautiful question. Is nature something that we're a part of? Is nature? Uh, let's just not. We'll, we could do another hour on this. <laughs> um, tell us, tell us a little bit about the the talos of nature and humans' place therein. I, I think, honestly, you would have to go to Santa Fe. I think if you went to Earth Day at St. John's, that's the kind of question you would hear about, would be, what is nature? Are we a part of it? Is it, um, is it something that we are hostile to as human beings? Is, is the, the human vocation to dominate nature, to control nature, or are we part of nature? That's a fundamental question. No way am I going to try to answer it. Um, on a podcast, especially, but even even in even in real life, um, awesome. And the, and question, the re- question is enough. Yeah. You want to just ask the question? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And go find and, some people to talk to about it. Yeah, and for for the record, you know, I'm not I'm not one to celebrate Earth Day, but I love the fact that St. John's is not a sanitary place in a way that so many uh, colleges are. In the sense, in the sense that um, the culture really grows when there's all sorts of things feeding it. And that's how organically the beautiful fruit that St. John's consistently produces on all sides of the spectrum, you know, they can think, right. And there's a ton of great work produced, you know, professionals, very high up humans doing great things. Very few of them are poor unless they have a habit, a religious habit that is by choice. (laughs) Right. Right. No. And I, I think also that, you know, the thing that my, where my heart really is too, is that the spirit of inquiry, just to go back to what I was talking about earlier, the spirit of inquiry can unite us um, in on topics where we seem to be divided. Like a real inquiry brings everyone together. That's right. That's right. And, and in the pedigree, just so people know, right, the pedigree of these colleges, all the ones that we promote, they all have, uh, you know, a pretty direct lineage, right? I think St. John's pretty much came from Adler or Chicago, basically, right? Or there's a beautiful then, story there, actually, because it's in fact, if I could take the keep the yeah, take box, it, please. Yeah, it's not that widely known that, um, so of course, there's this thing, classical education, which is this classical European education. Um, and sometimes I think people think that 
St. John's curriculum or the Adler curriculum comes from that. And in a way it does, but what they were most immediately responding to, the founders of St. John's, the founder of the Great Books Homes at, at Chicago and Columbia, um, which then germinated all of these um, classical Christian descendants, um, that comes from workmen's institutes. So organizations of working class people who yeah. wanted to teach themselves and um, give their lives uh, the dignity that they deserved in, in sometimes brutal working conditions. So the, the first great books list that St. John's used came from the British Workmen's Institutes, um, and uh, which Scott Buchanan knew when he was over in Oxford studying and got to know. So I, I just want that, that grassroots, humble origin to be no, better known, um, that it's, it comes from free people who want to, who want to make their freedom for themselves and who want to, want to propagate freedom. And here we are breaking yeah. away from the institutions, AMI exactly. and Catherine project as, as sort of extensions of this pedigree. Exactly. So you have, you have this beautiful tradition that's sort of galvanized and canonized in the United States, you know, I guess at Chicago and then St. John's college. And then at some point that's Christianized by the St. Mary's College Integral Program. And then from there, you have TAC founded, basically, when St. Mary's College got to uh, <laughs> whatever it's become. Uh, you know, you, MacArthur goes away from St. Mary's, founds TAC. On the other side, you have this cousin, you know, John Sr., out of that flows Wyoming Catholic. Uh, and, and now all these little beautiful, you know, UD popping up here. So it's a beautiful organic vine and branches at work. In many ways, you know, St. John's College might appear to be the crazy old grandpa that's still sitting over in his chair, you know, talking about Earth Day. Um, just kidding. Um, but like that pedigree should be, I think, respected. And and the fruit that you continue to produce is speaks for itself, right? I, I think that's right. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, there we go. We're going to have you back if that's okay. If, if we haven't insulted you too much. <laughs> Absolutely not. You can come back anytime. Okay. This is so wonderful, Zena. It's such an honor to have you on this program. Your book has done uh, great things for me and, and many. So Lost in Thought by Zena Hitz. I want to recommend it wholeheartedly to everybody. The Catherine Project, catherineproject.org and St. John's College. If you're up for these sort of things, croquet is amazing. Uh, and all that, and all that, uh, all else that comes with St. John's. And College. continuing the conversation. And continuing the conversation. slash watch. That's right. And the conversation will continue in this life and the next. Zena hits. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks for stopping by. Great work. Keep it up. All right, Larissa. Thank you for getting this together as always and making me sit down and record these. I really, I really enjoy them. And to all of our listeners, magnusinstitute.org for more. Join the fellowship today. It's free and almost as awesome as the Catherine Project. <laughs> there. All right. Thank you, guys. Great Thank work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zena. Take See care. You. Bye-bye. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnusinstitute.org copyright 2023 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved